If you had the chance, would you change the world? Welcome. I am your host, Ebony Gustav, and this is Cooperative Journal, where I interview mutual aid initiatives and cooperatives from around the world who are creating alternatives to our current economic system. Looms of Ladakh is a woman-owned luxury wool clothing cooperative based in the Himalayan region of Ladakh, India. They are a farm-to-fashion initiative focusing on small-scale and high-quality production to illuminate and preserve the traditions of the Changpa nomads of that region. Their pashmina, yak, and sheep wool are of the highest quality in the world. It's sourced directly from the region and handmade by the local women who have been using the backstrap loom for generations. In this episode, I speak with co-founder Abhalisha Bahuguna about the importance of creating a sustainable source of income to support the Changpa people of Ladakh who live in such a harsh altitude of 14,000 feet. She also shares why their self-sufficient lifestyles are being threatened, the history of textiles in that region, how the co-op is supporting members to reach their full potential, their governance structure, how they received funding, experimentation with natural dyes, challenges of competing with fast fashion, and their exciting plans for expansion. Thank you so much, Abhilasha, for joining the podcast. It's been a long time coming. I really appreciate you reaching out to me to share the story of Looms of Ladakh. Um, it's interesting because I actually had reached out to a Mongolian yak cooperative a few months back. Uh, and I was really interested to learn more about how they're using the textile industry and and getting the fibers directly from the animals, like knowing the complete supply chain. And also, that's just really rare to find a yacht cooperative. So I was so grateful that you guys reached out because you guys are not only doing yak, but so many other things. Um, so... I would love to learn about what Looms of Ladakh is and what was the inspiration behind the development. Thank you so much, Ebony, for this opportunity. Uh, so you just mentioned about the Mongolian Yak uh, Collective uh, that you reached out a couple of months back. Uh, it's wonderful to know about them also uh, because Yak, they, they're doing wonderful work. Yak fiber is something that Looms of Ladakh is also trying to uh, promote uh, along with the existing industry of uh, Pashmina, which is the finest cashmere uh, in the world. Uh, yak uh, is like more eco-friendly and uh, the hooves of the yak, they are not uh, so hard. I mean, uh, the pastures can stay for long. They are easy to graze. You don't have to go to too higher pastures to graze them. Also, the goat, you know, it's uh, it eats from the root. So we are all, and and you know, it's it's causing desertification according to some scientific papers. We want to learn more about it. So we also have an effort. Uh, we're trying to make an effort, you know, to promote the yak as a luxury fiber, and we would like to learn. Uh, 
you know, uh, more about that collective maybe later uh, from you. <laughs> so it's amazing. Uh, Looms of Ladakh, it's a women cooperative and it's based in Ladakh. Uh, currently, it has uh, seven producer groups in uh, different villages of Ladakh. Three of them are in Eastern Ladakh, which are uh, in the Changtang region. When you cross the Changla Pass uh, at an average altitude of 14,000 feet, uh, and uh, four of them are near the lake town, near the airport. Uh, so logistically, those producer groups are more accessible to the head office than the Eastern Ladakh. Uh, but our elected artisan office bearers, they try their best to keep them all connected. Uh, Looms of Ladakh uh, is striving, making an effort to add value to the locally available uh, luxury fibers, which are pashmina, uh, yak wool, and uh, Bactrian camel wool. So they are adding value at the source region itself. The, the thing is that uh, pashmina is so much in international demand, right? Kashmir is such a luxury fiber. Everybody uh, wants to own an heirloom of, uh, you know, pashmina item. Uh, but the herders which have been part of the raw material economy are not uh, having much stakes in this big industry. And we feel the pie is big enough for everybody to earn from it. Uh, our Italian uh, wonderful, you know, they, who have made it famous with their uh, sartorial sense, with their yardages, their beautiful fabrics, they can earn the the small and medium enterprises of United Kingdom who are our inspiration, they can earn. And even the herders at the source region, if they start adding value to this raw material at the source region itself, uh, they can also start earning from this whole big industry. Uh, because see, we have 50,000 kgs of raw material at the source region itself. And a herder after grazing, uh, his goats throughout the year uh, will make around 80,000 Indian rupees. So that's not much. And uh, asking them to continue that way of living at such a high altitude is uh, probably not a good idea. Uh, so those people, the younger generation, they did not want to take it anymore. And they wanted to migrate to Lay City, but in Lay City also, the carrying capacity of the town is, it's a small town, right? And you cannot also depend on tourism all the time. So we need to have sustainable rural livelihood alternatives, uh, which are at the intersection of ecology, culture, and economy. So we don't want that you, you know, increase the herd size of goats. We're striving to, uh, you know, um, add value to this raw material and take it to a niche level, which will be a slow process. And yak also at a luxury premium level. And then they have their camel and sheep wool, which can be more of, you know, mass products for the domestic market or elsewhere. Uh, so that is an effort of Looms of Ladakh Women Cooperative. It is now run by... Uh, I mean, elected artisan office bearers who are member owners of the cooperative themselves, along with 
two young professionals who are uh, management and design graduates. So, so that is how it is working. Wow. So you guys are trying to build an industry of subsistence for these herders that have a really difficult life and a difficult job. And I actually have a question about that too. Um, But I'll come back to it. So first, I want you to elaborate on where Ladakh is, because this makes a big difference in the reason why you guys have those type of fibers and why it is it should be a very niche thing and not something of high production. So speak to where Ladakh is, what the culture and environment are like. Okay. Uh, so Ladakh is the crown of India, like at the top, the northernmost Union territory of India. Uh, it was earlier a part of Jammu and Kashmir state, uh, but in August 2019, it was the state was bifurcated into two union territories, one being Jammu and Kashmir, the other being Ladakh, uh, because the fabled Kashmir, the Pashmina, uh, has its heritage from uh, Kashmir, which is Jammu and Kashmir. Uh, you know, through Jammu and Kashmir, the Europeans discovered this fine, you know, intricately woven fabric. That is why uh, it's called Kashmir in the world. So uh, these Kashmiri artisans and traders, they sourced their raw material from their adjacent, uh, you know, region, uh, which is a highland. Uh, It's a cold desert. the eastern part of the erstwhile Jammu and Kashmir state, which shares its border with China. Uh, So uh, they used to source raw material from there. After uh, the borders were closed with Tibet uh, in the 60s war between India and China. So earlier they used to get their raw material from Tibet where this Changra Pashmina goat was reared. And Ladakh uh, culture mostly added, you know, uh, I mean, wove products for utilitarian purpose made out of yak wood and sheep wool. When the war happened between India and China in the 60s and the, uh, you know, the trade routes uh, kind of blocked. So then uh, a lot of Pashmina herding also started uh, taking place in Ladakh itself. The herd sizes also changed. So earlier these, uh, like the tribal people, the Changpas who rear the Pashmina goat, who used to have a bigger herd size of yak, which was the transportation for them at this high altitude uh, during their migration periods, um, seasonal migrations, uh, you know, to the pastures, like higher grasslands, and then coming down again, uh, the transhumans that they practice. So uh, after the 1960s, the herd size changed, and we now see more of Pashmina goat herd than uh, yak and sheep, which they traditionally used to rear. And traditionally, uh, they used to rear it for utilitarian purpose, like they used to weave their carpets and rugs. Uh, they used to make their, 
you know, the fabric for the tents for it and different activities, the raw material they used to send to Kashmir. So the location uh, is the northernmost Union territory of India. It shares border with China and the Union territory of Jammu and Kashmir. Um, the, the average altitude is 11,000 feet for this Union territory of India. And it is a cold desert. Uh, yes. The culture is because six months of the year, it has seen, you know, blocked roads because of the high snowfall. Uh, through the two roads that go into this region, one, the Himachal Pradesh state, which is also a northern state of India, and the other one through Kashmir Valley. Uh, so they are a self-sufficient uh, economy, traditionally. So they used to um, practice subsistence agriculture around the western Ladakh region, which is bit lower in altitude than the eastern Ladakh region and the southeastern Ladakh region. Then they used to practice, uh, you know, uh, food processing by traditional ways, you know, so as to keep those uh, local fruits uh, and veggies for their winter consumption. Uh, they also uh, have a lot of, uh, you know, uh, barley, uh, soups made of that, uh, floor soups, and because agriculture is also not uh, that good. I mean, uh, not a lot of vegetables grew in Ladakh because of its high altitude. It is now because of different techniques and cold storages and, uh, you know, so much technology coming in that Western Ladakh is still seeing some agriculture. Uh, but traditionally, uh, I mean, they did not have their own uh, vegetables and other things in Ladakh uh, through barter, uh, you know, because they used to, so in exchange for wool, they used to get other stuff for their own consumption. Uh, also, because it has low population and they are very sparse in the geographical region, uh, they have different tribes I mean, different, not tribe is one, but different communities across the geographic region of Ladakh, uh, which are very distinct and they have their own traditional practices. Uh, so, but within each community, they are very close knit. They have had a tradition of, uh, we call them uh, self-help groups in other parts of the country or self-help groups in other parts of the world, you know, these producer groups, these basically community groups. There they called it Amma Sokspas and Abba Sokspas. So Amma is like for the female groups, the Abba is for the male group and for the community activities, uh, they had their roles and responsibilities. Uh, so they, they've always had a self-sufficient and community way of living. Yes, there are layers to it, uh, you know, that every, every society have their traditional elites. And uh, so even with the community way of living, it might not be very participative. Uh, so even by having those women groups, the roles for the women groups in the decision-making might be very different to the roles that male groups have, uh, even in you know uh, close-knit communities. 
so all those things that we see in any other geographical place in the world which has been uh you know um uh, cons- like cons- contained in a geographic place which is not very accessible uh you can find it there mm. oh ladakh is such a beautiful place uh, definitely whoever's listening take a moment to google images of ladakh because it is so pristine and beautiful but the conditions seem really difficult to sustain in and it's also interesting that during the winter months that's actually when a lot of the production happens when the women are um turning these fibers into textiles and these animals are obviously like they're mostly their sole source of sustenance because they are nomadic herders that is the way that's their way of life and so it's interesting that instead of tapping into these regions where people obviously have generations of knowledge of how to process these fibers it's coming from other parts of the world like pashmina is from that part of the world yet only 1% of the total production in the world is coming from india so why is that uh so because the production of uh, kashmir uh, the pashmina goats the quality all that has not been looked into in the past uh, maybe that is the reason it has not been uh the herding has not been for a commercial purpose uh it has not been very organized uh, maybe it did not see a very organized state support uh in this activity yes there has always been uh, animal husbandry and uh, different husbandry dep- livestock husbandry departments uh they have provided uh, nutritional support and a different uh kind of equipments to these herders but uh, it has not been in a very professional way uh, th- that can be one factor the other thing is because the local community is now awakening it, since 2005 i think it is now realizing the importance of the luxury fibers that they have at the source region and it is then that they started organizing themselves uh, you know to i mean how they have to market it how they have to sell it how they have to improve the quality of the raw fiber uh, so now they are seeing uh, realizing more uh, earning from this raw material and it has been 1% only because it's a small geographical region compared to the other geographical regions of the world like for example central asia mongolia so there it is not only uh, i was studying in a paper that it is not only the raw fiber from which they are earning they are also earning from the meat however in uh, so that drives down the prices like the price expectation from the fiber uh, for the herder right but in ladakh the goat is reared only for the fiber and 
not for meat. So all the earning has to be through the fiber. Uh, and then the cost of that fiber goes up compared to uh, the fibers available internationally. So when there is less demand, you're also not commercially, uh, you know, or in an organized way pushing for it or, you know, to increase the herd size. But there is a different, uh, uh, there is another difference that uh, the pashmina that is coming from Ladakh is the finest of all uh, pashmina, uh, cashmere in the world. It's, uh, it's like 12 to 15 microns in width, which is comparable to uh, vicuna fiber which is like the rarest of the rare fiber in the luxury industry. So this realization has not uh, synced in in the global industry, uh, global luxury industry. Once this happens, they will see, uh, Ladakh is going to see a lot of demand for their raw material and they're going to push for the herd sizes. And uh, yeah, then this 1% uh, contribution will increase. However, Looms of Ladakh uh, does not see sustainability in the idea of mass producing the goat herd size because we do not have to do what others have done. And now they are realizing that uh, it's not good for the ecology. So uh, Looms of Ladakh wants to balance all the natural fibers which are locally available and, you know, um, contribute to the local skills so that they can be at a niche level and they can demand a higher price for the products rather than rather than mass producing it and earning that same amount. Uh, so that is our idea. I mean, um, why do we want to... So, so like you asked, the question is that uh, Ladakh is only contributing one person to the world uh, luxury fiber industry, right? My question is that uh, why sh we should not probably target, you know, contributing more to that fiber industry, but the idea is that uh, whichever population is there, uh, they should be earning sustainably from it and uh, in harmony with the nature. So, so their lives are also like more content uh, they're earning well, they are respected for their trade, and they're also getting stakes in the global luxury industry. Why, why do we have to like uh, produce more? Exactly. And I feel like once it does get to the point where there's high demand and they feel like they need to produce more, then the quality diminishes and the land may diminish too because like you said the goats can be hard on like the degradation of the land and also these people that lived in the dock i mean they are very remote so they didn't really have access to the outside world they don't see how this fat fiber is so revered in other parts of the world so they don't see really the value that they have necessarily and they also don't have maybe the in the industry um, the mechanical industry in order to produce to meet that demand but I completely agree with you I think it's it should stay small scale um, yes and, and also yeah. you know uh, pushing for that more goat herd sizes and more production is it going to 
help the herders themselves. In every society, there are, uh, you know, people who concentrate uh, power, who are more like well-connected. So uh, all this Pashmina being the pride of Ladakh uh, and pushing for more goat herd sizes, how much will it benefit Eastern Ladakh or Southeastern Ladakh, which has the herder community? That is the question. So is it just satisfying, uh, you know, all of us that, you know, we built this thing and it is, uh, you know, getting laurels for it? Or is it like, um, you know, all the people who are well-networked, uh, they making a lot of profits from it? Or is it about that uh, the herder community, the source region gets more stake in it and they do not uh, want, I mean, there's no push factor for them to leave their terrains. Like it, it, it be a content, uh, you know, a sustainable society. So we, why do we have to uh, aspire for that global industry? We can be small, but we can be an heirloom niche, uh, you know, brand, which uh, people who have value for it, uh, they aspire for this exclusive brand. So Ladakh can have that thing, you know, I mean, they can remain exclusive uh, and niche and still be uh, a content and, you know, um, very sustainable society. Why do they want to uh, get more and more and more stakes in that uh, global uh, cashmere industry? Yeah, I, I really hope that it stays small because that's also what makes Ladakh so special, that it is this like very remote and um, nomadic place. But if it gets too big, then, you know, people will be striving for this like Western materialism. And I feel like that's when a lot of competition and separatism happens, whereas this is a community that's very tight-knit and takes care of each other. And so too, scaling up too big could ruin all of that. And I also read something really interesting about the Changpas, um, which are the nomadic people, that them having a pastoral lifestyle and not going to an urban environment is actually really beneficial to the environment because it's uh, deterring the government from developing on this land. So that's even more reason why people should support um, these pastoral farmers and support this industry because not only is it necessary for their lifestyle but it's necessary to protect the earth that and the environment the immediate environment that they live on uh yes i have to read more about this aspect however if if you know any land which is so strategic as ladakh uh changthang where the changpas live uh is the place where india china standoff took place last year and it's uh, it's a very strategic location. It's the, the borderlands, right? So any such land, if it is not habited 
then of course there will be diversion of land for other things uh so they of course it's important that habitations continue there the other uh, if we see it ecologically the other day i was reading a paper which mentioned about the black necked crane uh it's an endangered bird species of uh, ladakh and it lives and it thrives basically uh, it is used to living with humans the tribal people there and their livestock and uh, so i mean it cannot live independently so it's like cohabitation so it's a whole system out there you know ecologically also uh the other thing is that how many uh yes a lot of stud a lot of young kids they do not want to uh rear these livestock anymore at such a high altitude uh they feel that they are not respected for their uh, profession they are uh, called demeaningly changpas and so they prefer to become uh, porters they prefer becoming drivers for the tourism industry rather than continuing the herding activity uh but how much carrying capacity does any urban any town has basically so we do need sustainable rural livelihoods because there's no end to wanting more and more you know of course we sitting in towns and cities cannot ask them to keep continue to you know continue living at that high altitude uh, so the state will have to make uh, living much easier in those places uh, and the government is doing well they have the primary health centers in ladakh are wonderfully managed uh even at 14000 feet altitude uh i have personally experienced them uh even there are so many residential schools for the children of nomadic uh, community uh while the parents are away on you know their migrating routes uh so all these efforts are being made uh currently i learned about how premium uh, tourism is being promoted uh for you know a selected group of people to experience their way of living in changthang living with the changpa community however i have my reservation for this one because uh it this all needs to be planned very well with a foresight because uh one travel agency might say that we are promoting responsible tourism but when it starts giving easy money then uh, the basic instincts of all humans you know they overpower and then where do you put a stop so uh yeah um strict measures and you know planning with a foresight is required and not like fire fighting way when it goes wrong then you stop doing such things uh so yes uh it's a beautiful way of living with so much traditional knowledge and they it's good if they personally want to continue that way of life and they have options to live there uh it's good for the ecology it's good for the whole community yes and 
you guys are doing such important work to preserve this culture and their traditions and their skill sets and you're really honoring that every step of the way and one of the things that you guys also do in addition to these natural fibers is natural dyes can you speak about what you use to naturally dye the fabrics okay um so ladakh as i mentioned earlier uh, their textile cottage industry has mostly been utilitarian uh, like clothes for themselves uh, rugs carpets fabric for the horse saddle or uh, the tent that they lived in it has not been patronized by any uh, you know for any commercial endeavor or by any uh, you know tribal head or the royals uh so the practices there the textile cottage industry there is not very organized uh they do have many flowering plants and some of the people must have i'm sure practiced natural dyeing traditionally uh but it has not been documented very well in the past currently with uh, this realization of the locals uh, you know of the pride in the luxury fiber that they have all these beautiful efforts by the government by the ngos by the local entrepreneurs is going on for promoting this textile industry efforts are also being made uh, for natural dyeing looms of ladakh is also uh, making an effort in natural dyeing currently uh, they are using locally available uh, what do you say for example the walnut husk it gives beautiful shades of brown so uh, the cooperative is experimenting with the husk then we have those uh, vegetable leftovers for example the onion peels it also gives a beautiful brownish pinkish uh, some yeah sometimes greenish no shades different shades according to how much time you soak it uh so that is being tried apart from that because uh, it's a cold desert and we do not have much availability of lot of herbs locally available you know uh, herbs which have uh, natural dyeing potential a lot of natural dyeing uh, materials are also being sourced from places like uh, rajasthan from kutch from uh, kerala from uttarakhand uh, to practice to experiment and explore shades in uh, wool uh, so so we are still working on it and it's a long way to go uh, because we also want to document it well so 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 that it's a public repository we we want to share that knowledge that the women have collectively uh, developed you know in this exercise and we just do not want to learn it for the purpose of selling so it's it's going to be a very very slow process and i think there are there are wonderful local entrepreneurs who who are way ahead than looms of ladakh uh, in natural dyeing however the difference lies in uh the intention we want uh, this knowledge for the purpose of also you know 
contributing to the region's you know memory of that uh, textile and natural dyeing and we uh, are willing to share it with anybody who wants to learn yeah when you were talking about this i was like i want to see a video of this process from like seeing the herders to actually processing the fibers and then creating the textile from the loom and then seeing the dye process like that is so essential to like you were saying archiving this culture that maybe i hope this doesn't happen but in the next 50 years if a lot of people do decide to go to urban environments how is this knowledge going to be preserved and also consumers want to know the process especially now that people are wanting to be more intentional with where they're sourcing their clothes from and if they can see the source from like animal to the product then they're like okay this is something I want to buy into this is a tribe that I want to support and it just makes it all full circle and so I think that's so important and take your time because the greatest things come slowly yes right thank you so much uh, Ebony Uh, actually you're very right we should have some video documentation of the whole process Uh, we do have a lot of videos on the different processes but they're short clips they're available on YouTube and also Instagram. But like you mentioning, you know, from farm to fashion, how Looms of Ladakh Women Cooperative is doing it, it really needs to be uh, documented uh, well uh, in a way that it's not just a marketing tool for the cooperative, but it also shows the process in which we can share some learnings and experiences for others to give feedback on perhaps so yeah thank you exactly yes. <laughs> yeah i'd love to learn more about the members how many members do you yeah. have and what are the benefits of being a member okay so uh currently there are 200 women members and Every three years, the cooperative has elections. So the 200 members are part of the seven producer groups that I talked about in the beginning. And each producer group has a team leader, team leader uh, at the producer group level. Then at the federal level, we have five elected artisan office bearers who are elected once every three years from among the 200 members. So that election was conducted last in November 2020. And the next one is due in November 2023. The first one was uh, not exactly a very informed or, uh, you know, um, election or like uh, uh, the, the members at that time were not very aware of their choices because they were mobilized in groups separately and individually and then they were brought together for a period of a week and at the end of that week they had to elect the 
you know, first five elected artists and office bearers who were rural women. Uh, so this, we feel that the second election is more democratic and uh, it's more coming from them. Uh, and so, so with the first election, we feel that uh, we succeeded in making looms of Ladakh women cooperative representative. With the second stage, uh, it has taken it a step further by the members themselves asserting their representation in the cooperative in the role of management. In the first stage, it was us asserting that Looms of Ladakh organization and the business structure has to be representative. It has to be cooperative as founders. In the second uh, stage, the members themselves realize that it's their own cooperative and they want elections and they chose the members from among themselves. Now the third stage would be to make it more participative uh, where each individual member is more aware, uh, has more, I mean, there, there, there are more workshops for capacity building. Every individual has innate uh, ability to understand what's right and wrong for himself, herself, and also for the organization. It's just that we need to expose them to the situations to bring that out from them. So, uh, so that is going to be uh, the next step to make it more participative. And you know, otherwise, uh, like every group, it has some dominant members and some who are like more quiet and not advocating about what how things should be. Uh, so the members uh, are gradually realizing uh, what is good for their business. So in the first three years, it was us encouraging the second line of leadership and uh, asking them to do this, do that. Now in this, after the second elections, it is them leading the cooperative themselves. They were the ones who, uh, when they got this funding first time after in the fourth year, after the first three incubation years. So the elected artisan office bearers, they themselves conducted the two-stage selection process for MBA graduate and the design graduate to hire them as their young professionals. So, uh, so we have reached that stage now and gradually we want it to be, you know, uh, each individual to be more empowered not just for individual growth, but also understanding what true leadership actually means. Uh, so we currently are still a long way from there. We're also planning to take help of technology in that process. Uh, we are planning to rope in some management information system where application can be developed because now the members all have Android phones. So I remember a time that in the first year, second year, uh, we had to sit together, you know, to explore the different applications and how to uh, virtually meet each other or how to uh, go out on, you know, for exhibitions on a flight. But now they are like, they're doing everything themselves. 
and there are some women are naturally leaders probably i mean uh, they they are caring and because they are also doing managing their household and their livestock and there's so many things that they have those strategic skills they just need to be you know uh, given that exposure where they're able to realize what's best for them uh, but of course because when like um, of course there are goods and bads and like everybody is innately good but sometimes you know because of context and situation uh, our self interest uh, overpowers the collective interest and to manage those aspects we are trying to bring in more technology um, so that every individual member knows you know about his or her contribution to the cooperative and what he is gaining from the cooperative and how he or she, uh, sorry she can be the next leader of the cooperative so so we trying to work that out but we do not want to uh, suggest solutions to the elected arts in office builds i think 3 years of incubation almost 4 years of incubation is a good time for them to realize what's working and what's not working for them now we want them to come to us and if they want and ask us that you know you know this is where we are going wrong and uh, i think we need solution for it and then we can get that technological help for them it, even in the second elections so the second elections were due in may 2020 uh but then covid first wave started you know rampaging all around the world and the cooperative elections got postponed it was so heartening that as soon as the situation improved a bit uh, you know about the pandemic the members we started get, getting calls from the members that our election is due and we want elections so this voice this uh, has to come from them um and i i think looms of ladakh is doing well uh, for now yeah maybe you can ask me more like more questions because then i can go on and on and also make it too broad <laughs> i'm realizing this <laughs> because i start feeling about it and the nights keep talking about it <laughs> i know go very broad <laughs> Yeah, I can definitely sense the passion. I'm like, I don't want to stop you and it's really good that you're going so in depth with that because so as the founders, you and your husband, um you guys were kind of just planting the seed and laying the foundation for this structure and the organization of the women and then you gave them the tools so that they could spearhead it and take it over themselves and that you guys now would be more like advisors instead of this is what you need to do because they know what's best for them at this point and you guys also have done a lot to teach them different skills too um so you've taught them like managerial skills um how they can do design and knitting weaving uniform yarn spinning 
are some of the things I've seen. Also, basic communication in English, how to handle computers, and even a membership fund from monthly sales. So I don't know if you want to elaborate on any of those things, but I think that's really important because you are really helping to shape them to be like more well-rounded human beings and um, giving them the technical know-how and uh, exposure to other cultures, I think is, it's just really incredible because then it's not just um, making money off of their, their looming practices or their, how they're processing fibers, but it's, you're really giving them the tools so that they could take this anywhere. Uh so it's like, I mean, all these skills, like I mentioned, they, they're already there with everybody. And especially the women, they, they are strategic thinkers, like from within, right? They handle so many things, so many situations, and still stay calm. So, so, so they already had all these skills. And Looms of Ladakh is standing on the shoulders of the good work that has been done in the past by if you talk about the knitting skills then we had the moravian missionaries um, who crossed their ways with this high altitude region and uh, started some skill development programs we have we see a lot of tibetan influence in the carpets and rugs then our women members, they themselves uh, knew a lot of weaving uh, with the backstrap loom, which is like the traditional loom. So they already knew it. All we want to do is to uh, focus on the product for the commercial market, make it more uh, finishing, uh, you know, better, uh, better standardization, some more design interventions and all. So uh, that is all that we're trying to do. And we are not teaching them. We are just exposing them to the different markets, to the different schools of thoughts, to the different schools of crafts, where they are seeing that where is the gap and how we can fill that gap. So that is one thing. The second thing is that uh, when Prasanna and I, uh, like, ideated that this needs to be done uh, we were we were sure about one thing that we do not want this to be another uh, skill development initiative a project for the sake of you know cutting ribbons and then it is done and dusted it has to be a sustainable institution it has to become a brand uh, which is uh, generating its own revenue and it's not forever dependent on funds. For that, we cannot just uh, conduct some workshops, uh, some one month, two month, three month trainings in different avenues that needs constant handholding because that handholding is not that somebody is a giver in that knowledge or learning and somebody is a receiver. That handholding is just an assurance to the one who's actually doing it, the women in our case, that, okay, yes, you're on the right path. So it's, yes, just an 
a reassurance of how they were doing managing the budget in home so then they started doing it at the cooperative level so it's a reassurance from us so that is the hand holding and so the first four years like my first four years uh like it went like from morning to evening i was with them monday to friday and like uh because uh if any doubts are there then uh, we we used to discuss them that okay this is going wrong this is not this is right and this is yeah what you're thinking is right so basically it's kind of a validation i provided to how they wanted to do things uh so so that is why uh, you know all that uh, you know exposure and workshops in different uh, trades that you mentioned you know computers management um, um skills weaving knitting uniform count spinning all those were required but then they cannot be seen in silos it has been a continuous process like every day every day uh you know hand holding with them uh so that has been there and it's still a long way to go like because i mentioned that ladakh textile cottage industry is not organized uh we don't have a master craftsman passing on the skills to the new generation yes we have uh, elder women uh, passing on their uh, skills to their daughters to their sisters uh, to their daughter-in-laws but those skills in themselves are not at a craftsman level so they are also so so it's a very it's going to be a very slow and consistent process uh but because it's um, for prasanna and me it's like we don't get involved because uh, if if we are getting involved then it means commitment we cannot just leave it like that uh you know just for the sake of uh that we've done a project but because we want that institution to realize its full potential and because we strongly believe in it we do believe that uh, this uh looms of ladakh women cooperative has great potential in establishing itself as a cooperative luxury brand it has great potential in you know uh, sharing the fruits of this luxury industry equitably and to realize that scale so many uh, skill development programs like we saw in the nepal itc changra project uh, it it has wonderful uh, uh, it has contributed wonderfully there uh, however a lot of small uh, entrepreneurs individual entrepreneurs have come up you know in nepal uh, for changra pashmina do they have the scale to match the uh, competition with say zegna or loropiana or any other you know luxury uh, big brand uh, for that you need i mean looms of ladakh can be that exclusive collective brand and match the standards of that luxury industry so and we believe in it strongly which is like totally owned and managed by the herders and artisans and that is why we uh, want these women to excel in 
all the things uh, that are required to run a business and not just remain artisans showing their skills uh, you know and selling their products in uh, small exhibitions and all we want them to compete in that market of course they will need graduates professionals to assist them in this activity and they will hire these graduates to assist these professionals to assist them in this activity but it is important that these elected herders and artisans they are also uh, well aware of the happenings in the market and also the you know bottlenecks in their production and the business activities and how to solve it so that they all the professionals the young graduates and these electors herders and artisans they sit on the same table and make decisions so so that is the aspiration and for that it has to be very holistic and mm-hmm. slow and consistent yes yeah holistic and reaching their full potential i feel like are very key and that consistency because if they see that okay i'm being invested in with all of these trainings on an ongoing basis then they also take that own self responsibility to be more accountable and to continue those trainings on their own and to eventually become trainers themselves which i think is so important that knowledge just continues to be passed on um and for listeners that hear all the honking this is very normal in india <laughs> to hear honking so yeah, I'm so sorry for it. it's okay it's totally fine it's a part of the culture there yes all um, the noises and the sounds yeah. actually you know i uh, i was studying in tilburg and at first i was so peace in netherlands so in my neighborhood i was so um, yeah i loved it i mean it was beautiful and it was so peaceful and calm but i realized that at the end of the one year when i was of course i was very sad when i packed my bag after my education that i had come back uh, yeah and but i was missing all these sounds i was missing seeing all these people around me <laughs> whom i don't know but it's good to see them <laughs> yeah yeah it's a completely yeah i've been in remote areas of india too and then going to like delhi it's just completely different dynamic it's crazy um <laughs> so go so you were saying that you're helping to build these skills so that they can compete with these more luxury brands but i'm also wondering how you envision and maybe you don't want to compete with fast fashion but they are such a global powerhouse unfortunately that we kind of have to talk about that and so so it's not it's not in terms of numbers that we want to compete it's not in terms of how much profit uh, like who is making of course they are like we have a lot to learn from them in terms of business uh, but we do not want to follow anybody's footsteps looms of ladakh just wants to compete in terms of the same consumer uh, which aspires for that luxury brand 
also should start aspiring to have a loose of Ladakh air do. So that is where, uh, I mean, that, the positioning basically. But not profits for the sake of profits. I mean, if the earners, if the herders, the member owners of the cooperative, they're earning well with say, a, you know, whatever sales each year the cooperative starts making, if they're all satisfied and content in their way of living, uh, then we do not want to increase it. But we want to be positioned, you know, uh, at that niche market. Yeah, definitely. And also bringing uh, people's awareness to this long tradition of traditional textiles in India because India was manufacturing 25% of the world's textiles in the 17th century and this plummeted to just 2% at the end of British colonialism in 1947. That's a huge difference because and also in addition to that there was a need for faster textile production and cheap labor and unfortunately that had a lot of exploitation to the land of India and its people and so I'm wondering what's the biggest challenge for you guys I wouldn't say competing in terms of profit but competing to bring awareness to um, this luxury brand that might cost some more but the quality is so good that these are pieces you can pass down for generations so what is the biggest challenge um, for you See, guys and how just, you're overcoming yeah so and it's not just India uh, it's if we see within UK, uh, they have beautiful small and medium enterprises. They had those Scottish Devon's region with their Harris tweed. Uh, those women folk over there, you know, making their own handloom fabrics. So it's not just India that suffered from that uh, fast, you know, industrialization of the textiles. They suffered themselves, their own people. So. And I think, of course, this challenge is there uh, that if we are going to the same exhibition where you also have the power looms and the hand looms, the costs differ and it's difficult to, you know, make the consumer aware who not many of them uh, buy the product for its ethos, but a consumer at the end of the day wants a good product at a good price. So that challenge is always there. Uh, but I do feel that we are seeing, just as the cooperative movement, uh, the cooperative ethos that's gaining ground again, uh, we are also seeing a lot of activism, a lot of awareness on uh, sustainable fashion. Of course, there are uh, people who, are, who might be just using it as hashtags, but there are many genuine, you know, and aware consumers uh, in good places who are adding their voice to this sustainable fashion movement. Uh, so I think uh, I think we can all together uh, 
see through this challenge. And I am hopeful that we will. Yes, I think so too. Like you said, people want sustainable fashion, even though, you know, that's still, it's still very murky. But I think just Looms of Ladakh continuing exactly what you're doing and showing people the process, like what we talked about, like, there's your competitive advantage. That's really all you need because people want to feel connected to their source of clothing. Um, and the more knowledge there is about the benefits of using natural fibers, why we should be protecting this land that the pastoralists are using, um, why we should be supporting them to protect their culture and tradition. Like, people would rather buy into that. It's just a form of education and I think showing them, getting them to experience it. Um, and so... And you know, all these things... Uh, so textiles is not an industry in silo. So all these things are... Uh, these changes, whatever we have done to earth, whatever we have done to our way of living, it's affecting each part of our lives, our social connect, our climate, our day-to-day -day weather changes that we are seeing around the world. And people are realizing these changes. They are seeing them. And I'm hopeful that, you know, there will be efforts to understand uh, what the needs are. And not just focus on, you know, what I want. So it's, it's, it's slowly becoming we. Yes. Yeah. What are, how do my buying practices have an effect on the greater whole? For sure. So how did you guys receive the funding and resources to expand your cooperative? Because you said that that industry wasn't really invested in um, for processing the fibers, but I'm guessing you guys have created a lot of systems for that to happen more smoothly and organized. So my uh, husband, Prasanna, who's the co-founder, uh, for him, uh, he was the deputy commissioner of Lay. Deputy commissioner is he's a civil servant. So he was the civil servant of this region, Ladakh, uh, when we got married. And he was on a district tour to a border area where the women, they presented uh, him a pair of knitted socks. He bought them from them. And uh, he wanted those women to realize uh, market linkages for it. For me, it was uh, about, like I was studying in Delhi and I saw the Kashmiri traders, uh, you know, on a hot sunny afternoon and uh, yeah, trying to sell their Pashmina shawls, the fabric. Uh, that, that is when the thought came to my mind that it's such a luxury fiber, it's such a luxury product, but uh, the earnings from that product is 
in a few hands like it's not shared equitably and and if the same and my inspiration was that milk cooperative dr vargis kurian so uh, it was just you know a young college just a fleeting idea if this pashmina could uh, also be you know be in a democratic governance and you know participatory management format and uh, they can all earn from it so that was the route for me for prasanite was uh, you know how to make sustainable rural livelihood uh, so that was the motivation from him it was chance it was destiny that we got married in ladakh according to the buddhist traditions and uh, we were there and so he had a small budget in the administration for skill development project so from that budget uh, he uh, implemented this project for 3 months in each producer group to train the women uh, in the different skills now i would like to add that both prasanna and i realized that these 3 month projects or trainings are not actually trainings they are more of mobilization of members to come towards a cause and the real training starts after that mobilization process and it has to be a continued process if it has to be a sustainable institution so the initial money that uh he could take out from the district administration budget for skill development uh took care of the almiras for storage the frame rooms uh for weaving and uh all and the initial raw material corpus that the women got after the training period was over the first 3 to 6 months uh it was registered as a cooperative as an autonomous cooperative mm-hmm. uh, under the jnk self reliant act 1999 and for the first 3 years in like i don't know it must be a practice elsewhere also but first 3 years of a cooperative of an ngo of an any organization uh, you have to sustain yourself you have to and then when you have three financial year audits proper accounting of three annual finance like three annual financial year reports then you can apply for grants and funding so first three years we uh, tried to seek out other organizations who were well established for example there was handloom school maheshwar and i tried to um, uh, you know request the founder to take our artisans as members in her school because we could not take care of tuition fees uh, uh we could not send all the members to you know her school which was another part of the country uh but we decided that of course we'll have to train the trainers we'll have to encourage more peer learning and uh because we cannot get funding for each and every member so uh for example these four members were sent to her school they came back they shared their experiences with other members and this is how uh, you know it multiplied then for example there there are government fundings for exhibitions for taking parts in exhibitions uh, in different parts of the country uh, they have these fairs for crafts and artists artisans 
so we decided, uh, the elected leaders and I together decided that uh, every time, and they take care of, the government takes care of, you know, the round uh, trip fare, and they gave a minimal, you know, accommodation, uh, you know, rate for uh, the members who are uh, presenting the craft at these exhibitions. So we decided that because we have these 200 members and only in, for each exhibition, they're sponsoring only two to three members. Uh, and we want uh, to expose our, most of our members to these markets. Uh, so we decided that they will be sent on rotation for these exhibitions. So for example, if the first time two members went for the exhibition, the second time one from the previous uh, exhibition and one new member went. So the, the one who went from the previous exhibition had more confidence and the new one, you know, uh, learned in the process. Then the third time, uh, this new member and a new member went. So more people, you know, um, got exposure. So there are different things that we tried to make ends meet in this, uh, in small, uh, you know, in small opportunities, we tried to get maximum learning opportunities for most of our members. So that saw us through in the first three, four years. Also, uh, I took care of the social media from the beginning uh, till now. In those social media stories, uh, we, because stories is marketing, right? And our story is a genuine one. So whatever we are writing there, it's actually happening on ground. So, so we uh, presented it there. So every daily activity or our learning or our decisions they were put out on those social media platforms. So they also attracted a lot of attention of people. I remember I had met uh, the founders of Paramparik Karigar, uh, an NGO in 2000. Uh, this was 17, yes, 2017 or January 2018 uh, in Ahmedabad. And uh, they mentioned that uh, Ladakh textile is utilitarian, it's thick. It's not for the luxury market, although their fiber is luxury, right? And now everybody, and we are in 2021, uh, everybody knows that this luxury product is from Ladakh. Of course, Looms of Ladakh has a very small role in the huge scheme of things where the government is making efforts, the NGOs are making efforts, everybody's small entrepreneurs are making effort. Uh, but we feel that uh, the, you know, our women, wherever they went in those exhibitions, these markets and the social media stories, they did contribute to this whole story. So that also helped us get small fundings like you cannot get a big funding before the three-year ends, before you have the three financial year audits properly maintained, but you can get some small fundings. For example, we had Exim Bank who um, you know, funded a small training program because it is uh, they had to do it under the corporate social responsibility obligation. So then they elected artisan leaders and uh, together very, uh, you know, um, um, strategic they discussed with the bank they said that okay if you're giving us these 
five or six lakhs, uh, we want to use only three lakhs for the training program to purchase looms and different things, but we want to purchase raw material with the other amount. And so it was, so, so we tried to make ends meet with whatever small you know, opportunities that came our way. We also tried to tell our story to the world through social media, and that also helped. Um, we tried to put up a documentary and it also reached a lot of people. Then, uh, you know, uh, initially uh, we have a health council in Ladakh and they also contributed a small amount for a revolving fund, like an emergency fund. So if the raw material corpus uh, finishes, then the women can, uh, you know, take money from it from the fixed deposit for the raw material. So that also helped a lot. Uh, apart from it, it was motivation for the women for, you know, uh, and understand, and they're already living in that, um, you know, uh, difficult and uh, terrain where they know how to delay their uh, gratification, basically. Uh, so, it was not that, so they knew that they will not get money immediately. And that was also there in them already. And we also tried to uh, encourage that feeling that you have to earn it. Like it's trade, not aid. So you don't get easy money. You, you have the raw material. You have to put in your skills, your business practices to it, and then earn from it. So all these things, they helped us to survive in the first three, four years. And uh, in the fourth year, because uh, it has been a transparent organization with proper audits, with proper election practices, uh, we've been managed, we have managed to raise funds with which uh, they have hired two young professionals to help them. They have also purchased the land uh, on which we hope to build this uh, handspun yarn bank, come design atelier, come office, which we hope, which we aspire will be a symbol of a cooperative luxury brand. So, yeah, I mean, we think we have been very fortunate. So, so that's how we've managed all the funding part uh, from the beginning till now. Wow. So just putting yourself out there can do a lot for raising yes. funds and yes. again telling the story so that people can connect with it yes. and i love what you and said transparent about your processes when you're honest yeah when, when we put out our stories and then you know there are genuine people who want to help and then when they want to uh, you know, if they are genuine, they will also want to invest in genuine people. So they'll come to visit. And if you've been honest in your stories, they'll see what they heard or what they watched. And you'll get what is required to scale up your endeavor. Yeah, exactly. And that patience, like you said, it's trade, not aid, because aid comes pretty quickly. But then that leaves people dependent and not... Um, creating a sense of agency and 
So now that you guys have all of these resources and you're building a new design studio and office, um, what are your plans for expanding the brand and what are your current distribution outlets? Okay, so uh, they have a subsidized rental showroom at Leigh, uh, which sees a lot of tourist footfall. Uh, but because of the pandemic, uh, there were not much earnings. Uh, we're also planning, uh, I mean, we're working with some business design houses also on a B2B mode, business to business mode, like making exclusive products for them. And uh, uh, also planning to venture into online sales, e-commerce. Our real challenge now is because when we get a lot of funding, then uh, how to not let self-interest overpower the collective interest, how to be honest in the processes, how the processes have to be transparent. And so that is our uh, greater challenge. Uh, I think uh, marketing and sales will be smooth for Lumsa Fladat because uh, like domestically, it now has uh, credibility. So that is going to be smooth. We have to work more on streamlining our manufacturing capability uh, to scale up. Uh, you know, the production timelines, which are in harmony with the community uh, activities. So that we have to realize. We have to realize the standardized processes. We also have to... Uh, you know, like I mentioned, how to uh, check the self-interests, uh, not to overpower collective interests with so much money coming in. Uh, so that we see as a challenge. Um, for the marketing part, uh, once this, we are confident about the things I mentioned. Uh, we are working with uh, many partners on resource optimizations on uh, production planning because we do not have uh, as I mentioned I'm, I'm mentioning again and again an organized textile cluster where you have a set number of artisans in different trades so we have to see the profitability of each product and the number of raw material and the number of artisans in each skill set so that uh, with those existing artisans uh, good sales can be realized for the cooperative. Uh, so that we are working on and we are working on e-commerce also uh, because to make it lucrative uh, and sustainable for each of the 200 members, uh, they, they need to plan a sales uh, you know, cycle like every year, how much sales they have to make. So we're working on it, uh, but because it's not like in an individual enterprise, it's of course a lot of hard work, a lot of patience and perseverance goes into an individual enterprise also. But in collective enterprise, you have to, you know, each activity has to be acceptable to each member and a consensus has to be built for each endeavor. So it's like, uh, whereas in individual enterprise, it might be business 
economics and management knowledge probably. Here we need um, uh, learning and knowledge in from sociology to economics to political science to psychology to behavioral economics to everything it's such a people's endeavor and it's such a learning process uh, that uh, it's of course sometimes we feel that uh, i mean we have to stick to it uh, sometimes it's a lot of effort uh, but then we realize that uh, that is what is our motivation, that effort to keep everybody together. Uh, so that is going to be a slow and consistent process. I mean, it's not like um, in this, like the co-op, it's not just that we realize the business partners, we realize the market and we get it done. Here we have to find that harmony between the production cycle uh, production cycle which is set in different community activities of a traditional way of living of different uh, practices and also uh, finding that balance between the cycle of the market so it's going to be a lot of slow and patient work hmm. but that's so important because you're taking everyone's needs into account and like you said it's people dynamics dealing with groups of people and especially having 200 members like that's not easy it takes time to come to an agreement but i'm so excited to see what you guys are going to develop and how you're going to create a global brand that really honors the local people and the local environment and really staying true to that and so I, for my last question, want to know, how do you envision a changed world through the lens of rural farming and fashion? I mean, I, I, if I can change myself, if, you know, I mean, we cannot change anybody. We really cannot. We can just, uh, whatever we are reading, whatever that moves us or inspires us, we first, if we can all individually try to implement it at our levels, in relationships, in our families, in our workplace, uh, I think then it's, 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 it's going to help. And when, even if a few of us start doing it consciously, uh, I think that will create some kind of social influence probably, and maybe a multiplier effect, maybe uh, maybe some school of thought, like more people wanting to do it with their own, uh, you know, uh, whatever, like more with their own thought process, like, you know, taking something from our, our, experience and adding their own experience to it and taking it forward I think that is how it's going to work and yeah people people always realize this I, I think it has everybody says the same thing but it's a circle you know we we just don't have to think too much I mean for 
uh, we don't, I think, not to do too much, not to like, we have to do something. We have to basically slow down in that. We have to realize that why do we want to do that thing, whatever thing that we want to do. And is anybody else not doing it already? If they are doing it, then why do we want to do it? And if we are doing it, then is it in a holistic way? Will we be committed to it? So if we all start, you know, uh, following this, then probably uh, we'll see more brighter things around us. But I think we are far, far away from it individually. I do want to do many things to, uh, I want like, I want to give up non-vegetarian food, but I'm not able to give up my uh, marine food. Like I crave for it. So these are small changes that uh, we have to look within basically. And, try to at least uh, be more acceptable to people as they are. Uh, more tolerance, not just for the sake of, you know, in a negative sense, but being acceptable to different contexts, to different people, uh, to different situations, and working more on ourselves than others or on our uh, projects our activities more than worrying about what the other person is doing uh, I think then it's maybe going to be more kinder world uh, but it all goes in a loop you know we're all doing things because we want to live our lives meaningfully individually yes thank you so much I completely agree it starts with self and also acknowledging that everyone is at a different part of their journey and they have a different process for um realizing self and how their actions affect other people and like you said it's full circle so whatever action i take has an effect on someone or something else so just keeping that in mind as we um, engage in certain practices or put our money into certain businesses, like all of that makes a difference. And starting with self can have an, a ripple effect onto other people. It doesn't have to be this grandiose thing, but just starting with yourself. So thank you so, so much. Thank you so much. Thank you. Have a good day. Have a good day. Thank you. Thank you so much for tuning into this episode. I'm on a mission to get these little known solutions out to as many people as possible. So please help me by sharing, leaving a like and a review. If you would like to stay in the loop about future episodes, please subscribe to the podcast or my newsletter at cooperativejournal.com. Because I didn't say save the world, I said change the world, improve it, make it better than we find it.